the opening verse of the second chapter of John that Bobby just read begins this narrative about Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. And it begins, three days later there was a wedding in the village of Cana in Galilee. Three days later. It's an interesting beginning to a chapter because it almost guarantees that you're going to want to go back and look and see three days after what exactly. In order to understand the miracle of the water turning into wine, we have to understand the context in which the miracle takes place. Now at the time of the miracle at Cana, Jesus is not yet known. He's not a public figure yet. He's just the carpenter's son and a carpenter himself by trade. Only Mary, John the Baptist, and a handful of others have any idea of his divine origins. Only half of the disciples have joined him at this point, and even they are not at all totally certain yet why they are even following him. There's something about him, but they just don't quite know yet what it is. So to make sense of this beginning three days later, we have to back up to the chapter before and see that John the Baptist gives testimony about who Jesus is. And we get the backstory leading up to the first miracle of Jesus at the wedding at Cana. The testimony of John the Baptist. It says, This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John the Baptist answers, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah had said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So after John's announcement that the revealing of the Messiah is imminent, God doesn't waste any time now setting things into motion. And so John, the writer of this gospel, continues 
The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed in Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So here we see John the Baptist testifying as to who Jesus is, what his true identity is. And he says, I watched the Spirit like a dove flying down out of the sky, making himself at home in him. And then to add emphasis, he says, I repeat, I knew nothing about him except this. The one who authorized me to baptize with water told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit come down and stay, this one will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what I saw happen. And I'm telling you, there's no question about it. This is the Son of God. See, in this first chapter of John's Gospel account, we are starting to see a very clear timetable emerging for Jesus. And John in his Gospel is reporting these benchmarks day by day. He's given us a play-by-play. And he continues once again. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. See, in this passage, we're seeing Jesus is beginning to gather disciples. Andrew, Simon Peter. Philip, Nathaniel, and although they're not specifically named, we can deduce that 
One of them is John, the writer of the gospel. And the other is James. So then we continue in John's timetable. He says, the next day, this is the third day now. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said to him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So we have this four days of momentum building. And then we come to the passage about the wedding in Cana, which takes place, as it says in John chapter 2, three days later. So this first miracle then takes place on the seventh day after the announcement by John the Baptist that the Messiah is here among the people. Seven days, seven, the number of completeness. You see, the time had come. The time for the ministry of Christ on earth to begin. The time for the glory of the Lord to be revealed to the world. And so we see next in John's account the wedding at Cana. And there are some things to consider here. The wedding is in Cana, a small community, not Jerusalem. The wedding is not an extravagant affair, but rather a modest one with a limited budget, a smaller attendance. See, the setting for this first miracle is subdued and not meant for the masses. This is a miracle intended for a few select people. Three days later was a wedding in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were guests also. When they started running low on wine at the wedding banquet, Jesus' mother told him, 
They're just about out of wine. Jesus said, is that any of our business, brother? Yours or mine? This isn't my time. Don't push me. But she went ahead anyway, telling the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. Six stoneware pots, water pots, were there, used by the Jews for ritual washings. Each held 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus ordered the servants, fill the pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now fill your pitchers and take them to the host, Jesus said, and they did. When the host tasted the water that had become wine, he didn't know what had just happened, but the servants, of course, knew. He called out to the bridegroom, Everybody I know begins with their finest wines, and after the guests have had their fill, brings in the cheap stuff. But you've saved the best till now. This act in Cana of Galilee was the first sign Jesus gave, the first glimpse of his glory, and his disciples believed in him. See, there's a lot to look at here in this passage. Mary, Jesus' mother, is present, not just present, but somehow integral to the proceedings because she knows that the hosts are about to run out of wine. And we have to understand that at a Jewish wedding in that day, which could last for days, running out of wine for the guests was much more than just embarrassment. It was a big deal. Reflecting badly on the hosts and starting the married couple off on the wrong foot socially and even economically. Mary brings the wine issue to Jesus. She doesn't ask him to do anything about it. That's not her way. She has been his mother, but she is also very aware that he is more than a son to her. So she instructs the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She trusts that whatever he decides will be the right thing. She doesn't hover over the situation. She's not a helicopter mom. She leaves it all in his hands to act or not to act. She gives it up to Jesus. His will be done. Now Jesus' response, I think, is fascinating. His response to Mary and his response to the situation about the wine shortage. To Mary, he says, and I like the traditional language here better than the message version. He says, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Now this is a way of Jesus asserting that no earthly influence, no person, not even Jesus' mother, can direct the will of God or the perfect timing of God. My hour has not yet come. That phrase has several levels of meaning. 
The time had not yet come for Jesus' total divinity to be revealed to the whole world. The hour of His death on the cross was not yet at hand. The time of the reason for His coming was not yet here. Jesus is pointing to the cross, and so He shows us here that even in this early stage of His ministry on earth, He is fully aware of His mission and the timetable that He's on. And his response to the wine shortage, I think, is equally fascinating. Six stoneware water pots were there used by the Jews for ritual washings. Each held 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus ordered the servants, fill the pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. He doesn't just make a little wine. No, he makes 180 gallons of wine. And not just any wine, but the best wine. This is proof positive that inviting Jesus to your wedding is a good idea. Inviting Jesus to your marriage is an even better idea. But his response is blessing in abundance. Inviting Jesus in always results in the best and in more blessing than we could ever possibly imagine. But still, as amazing as this miracle is, only a handful of people even realize that it has happened. The disciples, Mary, the servants who dipped the wine out of the jars. But out of the ones that know that the miracle has occurred, the six disciples are the ones that truly benefit. See, up until now, they don't really get it. They don't really get the divine nature of this teacher they have decided to follow. Until water becomes wine right in front of their eyes. As the last line of this passage says, And his disciples believed in him. They believed. Do you understand what this is saying? This could be the foundation of the church that we're witnessing here. The foundation of the church. As we read this, we are stepping back into time to the birth of the foundation of the Christian church. The conversion of the first believers. The sign of the water into wine. The sign of the water into wine caused them to believe that he's not just a great teacher. That he doesn't just know the Torah scrolls inside and out. That he's, there's not just something about this man Jesus. 
No, this is a man with the power of God at his fingertips. And they realize here at the wedding of Canaan for the first time that Jesus is divine. And no, not everybody knew. It wasn't a wedding in Jerusalem with hundreds of people and, and the word of mouth one to the next, and, and by the next day, everybody's heard of the water into wine miracle. No, it wasn't about that. This was about six people understanding that the man they were following, the man who they would continue to follow for the next three years, through his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension back to the right hand of God the Father, this is about them understanding so that they could be the foundation of more than 2,000 years of believers ministering every day to the world about Jesus. This is where it began. A little small wedding, a little low-budget wedding in Cana. where the couple was smart enough to invite Jesus in. The wedding at Cana is also the most appropriate setting for the revelation of the glory of Christ with this first miracle. Turning the water into wine was a sign of the glory of Christ to come. The glory of Christ to come when He returns as the bridegroom to collect His bride, the church. How sweet will the wine be at that heavenly banquet when we finally make it home? When we finally make it home, there will be no wine shortage. We can be certain of that. As we wrap up this season of epiphany and move into this brief period of what we refer to as ordinary time before Lent, you notice the trappings are all green. They're not white. They're not purple. They're the green that we see most of the year. It's ordinary time. But let me assure you, there is nothing ordinary about it. Because the church is at work in the world. The church is doing kingdom work every day. And the church isn't people that wear stoles. It's not the choir. It is. But that's not the point. The point is we are the church. From the miracle at Cana, from the first believers who made a disciple, who made a disciple, who made a disciple, and on and on and on as the church grew, became a global force for the kingdom of God, and we are that force. There's nothing ordinary about that. 
We have a job to do out there because I guarantee you that outside those doors there are people that have never heard this story. Word of mouth, it's our mouths that are moving if we want this story to be told. I hope that during this epiphany season that you have experienced some revelations, some epiphanies of your own. The birth of Christ, the visitation of the Magi, the baptism of our Lord, the miracle of the wedding at Cana, all of these things captivate our imaginations. As we think about this mystery of Emmanuel, God with us, moving and living as one of us in the flesh, dealing with the daily struggles that we deal with, experiencing the very essence of what it is to be human with all of its challenges, and doing it all perfectly. No falling short, no sin, and doing it all so that His Word might be made real to us. So that His love for us might be unmistakable. See, no other gods have ever done that. Every other god requires that people die for them. Only the one true God was willing to die for us. What He did for us was everything. What He did for us was more than enough. More than enough. It's not about water into wine. It's about moving the church forward. Moving the church so that everyone eventually comes into relationship with our Lord and Savior. That's what we should be about. Not a church in Splendora, but the church in Splendora. Ninety families came through that door this weekend for food. And I guarantee you, they got more than food. They got more than they bargained for. With the prayer team set up, ready to receive them. With people not just to hand them a box of food, but to carry food to their car as servants of the Most High God providing for the least of His people. You've heard of the miracle in Cana. Well, this weekend was the miracle in Splendora. The church being the church for the people to advance the kingdom of God. And all of you made that possible. 
But it doesn't end there. Each of those touch points is just a beginning of the church working in the lives of those people. There's a personal epiphany that you have by the power of the Holy Spirit the ability to touch and transform lives. Not me, you. There are other ways to get involved in this community as the church just by being a friend to someone who is in need. Not necessarily financially, but just someone who needs an ear. Someone who needs a hug. Someone who needs a presence in their lives. We all know somebody like that. And we're all busy But we have to take time to be the church. I encourage each of you to be the church in this community. As this season of Epiphany comes to a close, you've had opportunity for the revelation of Christ in your life and in appreciation and thanksgiving for Christ in your life, the sharing of that to somebody who doesn't have it is the proper response. That's how we're grateful. That's how we show thankfulness to our God is by sharing it with somebody who doesn't have it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the miracle at Cana, turning the water into wine. We thank you for the eye-opening experience that was to the six disciples there, realizing perhaps for the very first time that their teacher was in fact the son of the living God. how that must have cemented their relationship with him. They weren't perfect people. And Father, you never do pick perfect people. Because it's not about the person, it's about you working in the lives of those people through them. And so, Father, we're here, all of us, not perfect, but willing. And so I ask you to use us as instruments in this community. Give us the strength and the motivation to go beyond these walls and touch someone in the name of Jesus. 
Give us the ability to see Jesus in them. Whatever you do to the least of my people, you do for me. That's what your word says. Give us the ability to recognize you in the people of Splendora. Give us the ability to be Jesus to them. You are a great and mighty God worthy to be praised. Your kingdom is forever and we are children of the kingdom. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us the ability, the motivation, and the drive to move the church into the future. To you be the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name, amen.